What's up? What you drinking? Anchor. Mm. How is it? Angry. <laughs> what are you drinking? Something brewed in Boston? Yes, actually. Plymouth. Mayflower Spring Hop Ale. I never had this before. Cheers. <laughs> Tom's got one too. <laughs> Feels like we're on a new adventure. Hey, there's a new uh, robot thing behind you. Your studio just keeps getting more and more decorated. I know. Apparently we have a bunch of that one. I didn't oh. know that. We're a lot fancier than that here. We have a bunch of art, art on loan from the Museum of Modern Art. Because San Francisco. So why not? Yeah. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Build Phase. <laughs> so what's happening? Anything interesting? No. No? It's Friday. Yeah. Just launched Liftoff 1-1. That was a, that's a fast follow. That's what they call that. Yeah. A fast follow. So when we launched 1.0, like on the podcast last week, I was talking about all the stuff that I wanted to do. Before the podcast aired, I'd implemented all of it. <laughs> I was I was like listening to the rough cut on Tuesday, and I was like, "Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I did that too." <laughs> I was like, oh crap! Uh, I I was thinking about holding off, like just just to give 1.0 a little bit of breathing room. I was thinking about holding off and just releasing next week, but I then realized that I had already merged all the stuff into the README, so there were very conflicting signals about what what liftoff did so i thought it was best to just get it out there i did improve the release process this week too that was actually awesome um so that the entire thing because it has to vendorize gem dependencies and then generate a lift uh a homebrew formula and then package a tarball and then push the tarball up onto the github pages branch of the repo and then push the formula up into our homebrew formula repo and so all of that is done by running a dot slash release dot sh script <laughs> inside the inside the directory i have t- takes like two seconds it's awesome fancy <laughs> i know i hadn't actually tested the whole thing before releasing this morning either because i had tested parts but i didn't want to push up new stuff all over the place and it all just worked yeah kind of scary you want to talk briefly about how Xcode 5.1 oh my ruined your day? God, sure. I've actually never experienced this before. I, I I really haven't. Like I've heard people complain about like, oh, Xcode updated, and so this compiler updated, and so all this shit broke. And I'm just like, yeah, whatever, right? Like that's literally never affected me before. I, I can't think of a single time that it's affected me before, but. One of our dependencies, Xcode Proj, which I've talked about, and it's part of CocoaPods too. Um, one of our dependencies, Xcode Proj, uses a native C extension, um, which is something you can do in Ruby. I don't know a whole lot about it, but it essentially it gives you s- hooks from Ruby into this C code so that you can do different things. In this case, it does some like UUID generation and some plist serialization and deserialization, I think. Now, this extension is... It's written in C? It's written in C, yeah. Okay. So the and way it's... it works is you have like an EXT and a folder inside your gem. And then when you 
build the gem, when you install the gem, um, one of the things that happens, one of the things Ruby gems will do is it will go into that directory and you can tell it how to do this, but essentially what it does, it will go into that directory, run Ruby xconf.rb, which is a file that you set up that tells it how to create the make file. And then it runs make inside that directory and builds like actually compiles a C extension. And so then you can refer to that C extension from inside your Ruby, which is kind of wild, but for reasons you'll find out shortly, a huge pain in the ass. But so they also bundle pre-built binaries in Xcode proj. So they have these two binaries for two different Ruby versions, I think, or Ruby platforms. One is like a universal, one's a I386 or whatever. The And if the native extension isn't built on the system, then it just falls back to those, to whichever one it needs. So when I was improving all this release process stuff, I don't know how I got in my head, but I, I, I was positive. Well, two things. One, I, I didn't want to rely on the pre-built binaries anymore just because it felt weird. Right, it, it felt like it felt like relying on this kind of like weird thing that Xcode Project just happens to do. What I would rather have done is on installation of Liftoff, I would rather just do that Ruby xconf.rb and then make myself right, I build it on the user system on, at installation time, so that way it will be built for their architecture. We shouldn't have any compatibility problems. Uh, so, so I wanted to get away from relying on those. Um, and so I wrote up this thing and it worked right where inside the homebrew formula, one of the thing, the first thing I do is like build the, uh, the native binary, very, very simple. And it worked great. And I tested it a bunch and then I merged it into master. And then about five fifteen, I got a notification from notification center that said Xcode has been updated to the latest version. Right. And I'm like, Oh, Okay. Uh, that's fine, whatever. And I go on, or maybe that was like at four o'clock and then around, but around five fifteen, I decided for some reason I was like, okay, well I'm going to do a release tomorrow. So I better test that this whole release process still works and that every, you know, just cause I, I need a test. I, I honestly, I need, I need some automated tests here. Like last night proved to me that, that, that I'm not doing this right. Like I need some testing around this installation process, but I decided to test the installation so I pushed it up myself and installed it myself, and all of a sudden, everything blew up when he was trying to build the native extension. And after I stopped completely freaking out, which took about an hour and a half, uh, like I was positive that Liftoff was dead. I was 100% sure that Liftoff was dead because I had it in my head, and I think I had done some tests, but I think I had gotten something wrong. I had it in my head that for... One reason or another, the way we had everything set up and the way I had to set it up in order for it to work is like Xcode Proj running outside of the context of Ruby gems and running outside of the context of Ruby, basically, like installed in this directory and we're referencing it directly and all this stuff. I had it in my head that we couldn't use the pre-built binaries at all, that it wasn't picking them up and that I had accidentally, I can't remember if I thought that I accident. I don't remember if I thought that I accidentally did it or if it was an intentional thing, but that liftoff 1.0, which used the old release process, which was kind of more manual, actually had the binary built on my system included in the bundle so that it was picking that up. Do you get that? Yeah, I think so. Um, You're saying it's a result from already having it installed. I, I thought I thought that I had built the binary and then packaged that binary 
into Liftoff 1.0 so that when you install it and when you get that bundled version of Xcode Proj, it was there. That's what I thought. Now I'm not sure. I don't remember. But it's not important. So I had it in my head that we couldn't rely on the pre-built binary, so we had to build the binary ourselves. Had to. So I was positive that given these restrictions, can't use the pre-built binaries. And the issue, we can't <laughs> build the binary ourselves. <laughs> like, that was it. <laughs> Good run, lift off. Like, <laughs> close, <laughs> close it up because <laughs> there's nothing yeah. left to do here. That, <laughs> you had a solid uh, week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a good week. And, you know, <laughs> it's just call it quits. Um, so it turns out that the version of LLVM that ships with Xcode 5.1 turns on an error for unrecognized compiler flags, which is a good error, honestly, because you don't want to be passing compiler flags to the compiler and it just being like, well, I don't know what that is, whatever, and just skipping it. You know what I mean? It definitely seems like a good error and something that you'd want the compiler to pick up on. But the system version of Ruby, which we rely on for liftoff like we're we're specifically using the system version of ruby for all for everything um the system version of ruby that ships on mavericks uh 2.0 patch level 24 or something 247 i think um creates a malformed make file when you run ruby xconf.rb the the make file that it creates is actually missing two commas in two of the command line flags so <laughs> system ruby can't create gems with the compiler that comes with Xcode 5.1 all of a sudden. And there are supposedly some ways to fix it, and I wasn't able to get any of them to work specifically. I think I was doing something wrong. I think I was just setting something wrong now. But so I spent most of the night trying to figure out how to fix that, like literally until like 9 o'clock at night. But um, found out like <laughs> just about the time I was about to give up, I just commented out the code that built the extension for one reason or another. And I was like, well, let me just double check that all my assumptions are correct. So I commented out all that code that built the extension, pushed it up, tried installing it again. It installed cleanly, which I expected, but I expected it to blow up on run. Um, tried building a project, and it just kind of worked. So we are able to pick up the native binaries or the pre-built binaries, which is good. But what sucks is that I still would like to be able to generate the binary on the system. And I don't know how to do that. I don't know what the solution is here. Because Apple would have to, like, the problem is Apple has to update system Ruby. Because this is fixed in Ruby. This is a known issue that has been fixed in more recent patch versions and, like, in 2.1 and whatever. So Apple would have to update the system Ruby. But even when we do that, we would then have to require that version of system Ruby. Do you know what I mean? Effectively making it work on like only Mavericks ten nine three or whatever. Exactly. That's a problem. And that's not that's not something you can easily do inside homebrew. <laughs> Such a pain in the ass. Well, shit. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. For right now, this is working. Um, like I said in the last podcast, the bright side here is that there's another very large project that depends on this gem, Cocoa Pods. And so an issue was created today about this exact same thing, and they're talking about how do they fix it for them. 
And so we'll get that fix for free just by updating our bundled version and, you know, doing whatever we need to do. So um, that was a very scary night last night. <laughs> Seriously, man, I was freaking out. <laughs> you mean you're you don't like seeing four weeks of work just uh, four weeks slip yeah. away from you? No, just uh, awful. But the reception has been pretty good for liftoff so far. So I'm happy with it. And I'm happy with the 1.1 release, adding all the template stuff and adding all the uh, added template. Basically, it added template support in CocoaPods. That's kind of the main thing that that I'm looking at it as adding uh, template support in CocoaPods, and then it you know fixes some bugs and kind of changes the way a few things work. We're not asking for the author name anymore, for example. Um, we're pre-populating that with information from the system, which is crazy and weird and magical, but it works. And then we are asking for company identifier information, right? Com dot dot bot, whatever. Um, where we weren't doing that before. We were just dumping the company name in that string. Com dot company name, you know, dot product identifier. So now we're asking for that and we're trying to generate a, uh, a reasonable default based on the company name that you provide. But uh, I think it's a better... Is that you have to sanitize the company name? Yeah, we're you know downcasing the whole thing and then stripping all special characters. It's that simple. It's literally just like a G sub and then uh, dot downcase in Ruby. Word. Yeah. Do you remember Objective C? <laughs> a little bit. I, I've heard of it. Tell me of this. <laughs> remember when we used to do episodes about like whole classes? Oh, yeah. You want to yeah. do another one? <laughs> yeah. Cool. This one's kind of obscure. Yeah. I want to talk about UI view controller. Yeah. I've heard yeah. that once. Yeah. I think I used it on not my last project, <laughs> but, but the project before. So in this latest project, I've been doing what I guess you would call a lot of front end work, yeah. which means I'm writing a lot of views and a lot of view controllers. And it's pretty much convinced me that doing any sort of view layout in a view controller subclass is a smell. Yeah. It feels so wrong to me. And yeah. I'm and I'm starting to think that Maybe we shouldn't even be using the view that UI view controller gives you. Like I, I now kind of see that as like scaffolding, like the framework trying to help you along when you're new. But I, I'm starting to think that we should be taking advantage of load view and creating custom view subclasses for every view controller. So you're saying that the main view of UI view controller, like self.view, should not be an instance of UI view. It should be an instance of a custom class. Correct. It's a cool rule. Yeah. Maybe don't do this every time. Like if it's, you know, if you have a really, really simple view, then that might be overkill. Like I'm not saying to do this all the time. But if it even has just a couple sub views and you're doing, you know, you're adding constraints with auto layout or you're doing just, you know, frame math to lay out sub views in a view controller, I think that's wrong. Yeah. So what, what what are you doing that feels better to you? So I've come up with a sort of convention where the view for a view controller will be named exactly like the view controller, mm-hmm. just without the word controller on the end of the class name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in a, in a sort of base view controller, which I think most apps usually end up with this way, you end up making some base view controller that all of your other view controllers come off of. Mm-hmm. So that one is smart enough to look for a view with that sort of naming convention, like chop controller off of your name, look for a view named this way, and try to load it. Yeah, that is... The way I mean that that pattern makes sense. That is the way that nib lookup works as well, right? Like if I have a nib 
and it's called like if my view controller is called my view controller and it loads a nib the nib that it looks for first it looks for my nib or sorry if you're if it's my view controller it looks for my view dot nib zip whatever and if you can't find that then it falls back to my view controller dot zip so I actually didn't know that. That's yeah. That's we, interesting. We 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 took advantage of that on um, one of my last projects, the SDK stuff that I was working on. We took advantage of that fact to allow if if you wanted to use our UI library and you wanted to override a specific view, you could actually all of our all the stuff inside the library was named my view controller zib. So if you wanted to override that view, all you had to do is add a myview.zib in your project and yours would get picked up before ours. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Sorry. So continue. So you name it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, follow this convention. That's what we're doing. You know, you do whatever you want, but it's really helped to clean up my view controllers. You know, Mm -hmm. we've talked previously about putting your delegates and data source in NS object subclasses and linking them to your view controller. Mm -hmm. And that's a good way to kind of enforce SRP. But we've never really talked about getting all of this sort of view setup code out of the view controller. Right. And it didn't really become apparent to me until I was working on this project. I'm using auto layout and I'm not using nibs. And I end up with tons of constraint setup that uh, makes me twitchy. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm realizing that this stuff doesn't belong here. Right. Like the view controller is managing views, not managing sub views of its view. Right. It's almost like it's almost like the implementation details of that view are leaking out into the view controller, right? Right. Right. Now you could argue like l- let's say for illustrative purposes that we want to make a view that has just a table view in it. Mm-hmm. And we decide to go this route. We do a UI view subclass. It has one sub view that's a table view. How do you set the data source and delegate on that table view from the controller now? Because it's one level away. There's my view controller, my view, then UI table view. How, how would you do this? I'm I'm curious. I would probably end up using view controller containment instead of. I would let the table view be essentially be a table view controller, right? That's contained inside the main view controller. Okay. And then pass it that way. Um, I probably wouldn't deal with subclassing, like trying to abstract away the table view entirely. You know what I mean? Yeah. That that hierarchy is so simple that that. Is probably a bad example. Well, yeah. Plus, plus they already have that separation of view and view controller, for the most part, with the cell objects. Right. Those are where all that layout code needs to go. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But what I was driving at was, if you go this route of making custom views for your view controllers, mm-hmm. do you expose the sub views in the public interface of the view? Uh, no. Uh, maybe setters and getters. Maybe like methods to do things from a higher level you know what i mean but it should be behavior not properties i probably wouldn't expose any of the actual properties as properties okay good so we're in agreement yeah because i feel like if you were you know to expose your subviews in a view you're not really helping the problem any because you're still configuring the subviews from the controller and not um, just interfacing with the view directly. So all you've managed to do is like move the setup code somewhere else. Right. You're just pushing it down the line one step. Right. But you're not really fixing the problem. Right. Right. I feel like this is getting into like passing like model objects down into your views. Are you still like I think we've talked about this before but like passing 
model objects into view cell, like into cells, into table view cells. I know you were against that at one point. I'm still generally against it. Yeah. Yeah. So my common approach is to figure out what is the sort of lowest level data structure that I can give to this view to let it do its thing. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of an object with, say, two strings and an image on it and handing it to a cell, I will just give it each string and the image. I think that's the controller's job. Yeah. It's to pull those things off the model or, you know, um, maybe, maybe you're observing a model and you're just like passing those things down into the view, but handing the model object to it, I could see why you'd want to do that, especially in your application. Like if this view, ignoring code reusability, like if this view really is just for displaying this model thing over there, you could make an argument that there's no harm in just passing that model object down. You're not building a framework, you're building an application. It's sort of the end of the line here. Yeah. Like that's not really going to, like that view is so unique and coupled to that concept that the model's trying to represent anyway, that you can make the argument that they should just go together. And it simplifies things greatly. Well, what about doing the, doing the other thing that we've talked about a little bit is, is having some kind of a displayable protocol where objects can conform to it. So now your view or your cell or whatever, it's not coupled to that object. It's just coupled to something that can be displayed. It feels like a nicer middle ground. I don't know if that's... It certainly makes things sort of elegant, you know, saying that this model conforms to this protocol and then the view really only knows about objects that conform to this protocol. Yeah. In practice, it feels like over-engineering. Yeah. It feels like a lot of code and a lot of, you know, like making that protocol and having this model object over here conform to it. It feels like doing too much work Hmm. for little gain. Can we pause for a second? Yeah. I've had a lot of beer. I'll be right back. But anyway, with regard to you know passing model esque values down into a view, mm-hmm. I'm I'm pretty much at the point where I'll, I'll write a, a you know a setter, you know, like or a, a few setters. Yeah, it, you know, you think that's a smell like if you have an object where you have to end up passing like I say anything more than three properties down into a view, how do you deal with that? What if your object has state and you need to display things differently based on state? Can you give me an example? I can. Uh, a line item in like a receipt view. Basic example, it has to show if it's a refund, it has to be red. If it's a payment, it has to be green. Hmm. You know? Because I feel like passing that Boolean down into the view is weird. Right. And actually, yeah. And I wouldn't even say a Boolean in that case. It would be like an enum. Yeah. Like- yeah. I think that's semantically correct. Passing it down. Yeah. I think it's up to the controller to determine what kind of thing this is and then tell that to the view in the way that it understands it. But then your view has behavior. I see what you're saying. So now the view has to know that these things are green. Yes. Or these things are red. Yes. And it has to have behavior based on this enum flag, whatever. So I, I guess in, what I'm what I'm getting down to is like should views have conditionals in them? Hmm. And is there a way to avoid it? Yeah, I don't know. So in, in this specific case, I would probably initialize that view with a with two colors. 
I'd probably say that like this is a reimbursement color. Sure. Yeah. That way it doesn't actually have to know which one is which, but then it yeah. would still have to look at the state coming in. Yeah. I'm more concerned say, about the that the view has to know anything about any state anywhere. You know what I mean? I I feel like adding that stuff is just asking for bugs because views are just kind of hard to test. So you're not going to be able to write a good test around that behavior and you're hiding away this behavior in this cell where the view controller just looks like it's and it's it's nice from an API standpoint. Like that's the thing is it really is nice from an API standpoint to be able to say like cell configure for dollar amount is refunded, that kind of thing, or dollar amount refund state, whatever, and passing those in and then having the view just do the stuff for you. That's super nice. Like that's a nice clean API, but the clean API is hiding the fact that you have this kind of behavior hiding in the view where it's going to do different things and it could potentially do the wrong thing. Right. Which is why I think that mapping still belongs in the controller, but I'm only saying the controller because I know for sure that it shouldn't be in the model, or the <laughs> right. view. you know, right. and it, it doesn't even feel right in the controller. And I'm starting to understand why people come up with things like view models. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking, well, the only other abstraction is to have some kind of intermediary layer that you say, give me the cell for this state. You know what I mean? And it passes back a refunded cell or a charge cell, for example. It passes back one of those, and those both conform to a protocol or have a common uh, superclass. And then you can call just configure for dollar amount on that. And there's no behavior then in the cells. Each cell is dumb. And the cell just like refund cell just happens to be red, and the credit cell just happens to be green. What is that thing? A view model, I guess. Yeah. I, we end up with bloated controllers because we keep hearing like, you know, models are supposed to be dumb and views are supposed to be dumb. Well, someone's got to be smart. <laughs> like, and it just ends up in the controller and that's not right. I think it's okay for models to be smart. I just don't think they should know. They shouldn't be smart about this specifically. Like they shouldn't know about view information. You know what I mean? Like that's crazy. Sure. Um, but for example, you know, jumping languages, but like we have a project configuration class in Liftoff, right? And so it's it's created with you hand it the content uh, hash created from the contents of the Liftoff RC. You hand it this hash, and it basically iterates through the hash and 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 sets itself up based on the hash. It's essentially doing um, set values and keys from dictionary, whatever the hell that method is called. You know the one I'm talking about? You, you pat in uses, it's doing KVC. And so it adds, it sets whatever. Right. Um, it's basically doing that same thing on initialize. And then we have two methods, author name and, uh, or just author and company identifier. Those are two things where the default value. So, so w- the way those act is, author name, for example, it returns whatever it was set as. So author returns the instance variable author if instance variable author exists. If it doesn't, it returns whatever value is saved on the system, right? So we try to get that sensible default. Company identifier returns the instance variable company identifier if company identifier exists. If it doesn't, we return a string based on the downcased and normalized company name right okay that that is logic right that is that's logic but because it's an, a very very simple 
object that exists outside of a view hierarchy, it's completely testable. So I have unit tests around that that can exercise that, that can say that, yes, this is correct. You can't do that. Or you can, but not in a good way. You can't do that with a cell. You can't have the cell say, you know, you can't, you can't say I pass in this and then check this color and make sure it's red. And you wouldn't want to do something like call a method on the object and type check the returned class of the cell object that the, I don't know, that's weird. I mean, that's weird for a whole bunch of reasons, but that's bad. But so my, my point is that I'm more along the like fat model, skinny controller line. That's a rails thing. That's for the most part, I think that's, that's pretty much a rails thing. But the idea is that controllers in rails controllers should be very, very simple. They should just do basically be passing objects around and instantiating objects and like routing behavior but they shouldn't have that much logic in them themselves. But in the case of a Rails app, their views end up having logic. logic. Yeah. Because, you know, if we try to draw parallels to you know, uh, iOS yeah, development... It's, it's, not a, it's not one-to-one because Rails isn't actually MVC. <laughs> Rails is something weird. Right, um, but it tries to be. Yeah. Everyone here, everyone here will tell you that Rails is an MVC. Like, I'm not, I'm not just... I'm not just saying that to be like snooty iOS developer. I'm saying that because like that's what I hear my coworkers say on a constant basis is like well yeah, but Rails isn't really MVC. Now are you saying that because they do end up handing model objects down into the view layer? Like giving some model to a partial or I don't I don't know enough about Rails to know what it's doing wrong or not wrong, but differently. But I also know that um, that's not true. I was going to say that Apple's version of MVC isn't quite right either, but I just think that our interpretation of Apple's version of MVC isn't quite right. Our, as in the iOS community as a whole. And I say that because, like, maybe it's Apple's fault, but we've completely taken the word controller out of context and we've made it mean view controller when it doesn't need to mean view controller. It just needs to mean controller. Totally. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the decision that they made saying UI view controller is front and center of every application. Yeah. You subclass it, yeah. and it's just a convenient place to put controller type logic. Right. But but my point is that there's nothing about Coco that means that that's the way it has to be. You could create controller objects that inherit from NS object and do controller type things, right? The glue layer between models and other models, for example, like the controller objects in MVC don't have to be just view controllers. They can be controllers. Right. So here's a question for you. Yeah. You want to fill out a view. You have this model, but one of its fields is nil. Mm-hmm. But you don't want it to just be empty in that view. You want some sensible default value to appear in its place. Like let's say you're displaying a name of a place and its address. And if the address is nil, you just want to say like no address or something. Yeah. Where does that logic go? Because you might not necessarily want that if you do like, you know, model object dot address. Mm-hmm. You don't always want it to return default address string in the case that there isn't one, but yeah. you really want that when it comes time for presentation. Yeah. So where do, where do you put that? It, it, like let's say you have a model and a controller and a view controller and a view. Where does that fall? 
Yeah, I feel like we're getting back into MVVM. <laughs> and I like I have very poor grasp on MVVM and view models in general and what they're supposed to do, but that definitely sounds like the pitch for view models. Is that that's stuff that you don't want in the view. Definitely don't want that in the view because it's just again, it's behavior. And you don't want it in the object for the exact reason that you stated, which is that maybe you don't want that behavior everywhere, right? You just want it in the context of this specific view. And that's where that view model comes in, which is like this translation layer of like, my understanding of view models is that the view model would have an instance of the model and would tell the view how to represent that model visually, right? Right. Does that jive with what? Yeah, that's my general understanding of view models as well. And that sounds awesome to me. Like that does sound like it fixes a lot of problems. Actually, the Rails guys use something kind of like that or have used something kind of like that. They have these rules that they don't follow always, but I think that they try to follow a lot. Um, This Ruby developer named Sandy Metz, she came up with these kind of like four rules. And I don't know them off or four or five rules. I don't know them off the top of my head. We have a blog post on it and I can link to it. But one of the rules is that view controllers can only instantiate one object. So views can only know about one object, period. But that's troublesome if any, t- you know, that doesn't work a lot of times on a web page where you have to say, like, have a user object up at the top and then like a purchase object in the middle, just spitballing. You know what I mean? But there's obvious places where that doesn't work. So then they create this facade pattern. So they put all those objects into another object. And then that object has methods on it that return bits and pieces of those contained objects. Maybe it does some logic to modify the strings or do whatever it needs to do to display the right thing. And that way they just pass one object into their view control into their view. And then the view just has to look at this one object that isn't even tied to the actual models in order to get data to display it. It sounds a hell of a lot like the view model. To yeah. Me. Do you know what they call this? Like, aside from using the facade pattern, like, do they have a specific name for? That's that's the only thing I've seen it referred to as. But like, literally, just now explaining it, it sounds a lot like a view model to me. It sounds, sounds a like lot. a decorator. Yeah, you're kind of decorating a model with presentation the information. Decorator decorator pattern, I think, is a little bit different because the decorator pattern would expose the original interface and then extend the original interface or change specific things. So that's when you have like user and admin user and admin user is just a decorator for user. So it holds on to a user object and then forwards all of the anything that would be sent to user. When you call it on admin user, it just passes those through to the user that it holds on to. But then it also changes some things. So like is admin is set to yes and stuff like that. Maybe a different string here or there, whatever. But the point is that you can treat an admin user exactly like as a user. The difference with the facade pattern is that the facade pattern is a different interface, I think. Okay. The difference is that a facade pattern is a different interface, but it's a very stupid object. It doesn't actually have state itself. It relies on the state of the object that it contains. Right. But that's subtle difference. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, right, it's like, splitting hairs. It's putting names to things that are very, very similar. Let's go back to filling out a cell that has a location's name, an address, and an image. Yeah. So I have some location yeah. object, and then I create like this location presenter, and I treat it like a decorator. So now if you 
call the same methods, you know, name, address, image on the presenter, mm-hmm. that's where that sort of logic would go. That's where when you call address on the location presenter, it would say super address if nil return no address, like as the string. Right. Except for that he would hold on to an object. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a subclass of the object. It would actually – So you're saying like a decorator is a something plus more. A, de- a decorator is essentially a category, right? So it's oh, a that's cate- interesting. It, a decorator is – like this is the closest I've been able to figure out inside – Objective C, but a decorator is essentially like a category, but a category where it's totally cool to override the behavior of the existing class. So I have a presenter, for example, just use your example. I have a presenter category on user, and all of the normal calls to user return the normal value except for address. I override the address getter inside my category, and I say, if self.address return address else return no address found. What if we went in a different direction and we used the category but just added new methods instead of overriding and then only the views that need it can import that category. But so effectively it, to everyone yeah. else, the model hasn't changed. Yeah. And, and actually it hasn't. I feel like that might be an abuse of the category system. Just because you don't import a category doesn't mean that you're not actually getting that behavior. It just means that you can't call that behavior in code. Because category, when categories are loaded, they're just bolted onto the existing object. So it's there. In the runtime, all of that stuff is there. That's why stuff like autocoding works and is awesome, is because you just import this CocoaPod, and all of a sudden, everything in your system has um, NS coding support, right? Like you don't have to import anything anywhere, but at the runtime level, when the runtime calls those methods, they're there and they're defined and they have behavior and it does the right thing. I mean, that's just generally one of my problems with categories. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it sounds like we've come down to you either subclass the model, override values, or create something that has a one of these model objects inside of it, like initialize or, it. Or create a protocol. Or create a protocol. I think those are the three options. And I think you're right that a protocol feels, I don't know, it kind of feels similar to the, uh, we'll call it view model for lack of a better understanding of view models but a protocol feels a lot like that view model concept don't you think but with a abstract interface as opposed to a concrete interface yeah yeah i think my problem with the protocol is that only one class conforms to it whereas usually when you make a protocol it's to provide indirection to many classes sure and so when you're just doing it for one it feels like overkill i think that's my problem with it you're doing it specifically to decouple the view from the object, right? I think it gets back to one of the things that we said a long time ago, I don't know, episode three maybe, about objects aren't necessarily for code reuse, that it's for architectural reasons, and it does make more sense for views not to know about the specific object that they're looking for. And so if you can abstract that into a protocol, then maybe it does actually make sense. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you're still adding that behavior to the model, right? We're getting back to that problem. It really kills me that there isn't just like a right way to do this. <laughs> uh, As with most things in programming. Yeah. <laughs> Have we talked this to death? Totally. All right, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> do we have conclusions here or no? Absolutely not. No, nothing. Cool. But hopefully, you know, we've gotten people to think about this a little bit. Yeah. Cool. 
Show notes for this episode will be found at podcasts.thoughtbot.com slash build phase slash 31. Please email us um, if you have any sort of recommendations about what we were talking about in this episode. Build phase at thoughtbot.com or at build phase at Twitter or app.net. Also, leave ratings and reviews on the show at uh, iTunes. At iTunes. The on, iTunes. On, on iTunes. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> you go to iTunes, so it's right. that. Okay. All right, dude. <laughs> I'll see you. All right, later.